you've got your Bibles with you, I hope you do, take them and turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. If you um, didn't bring a Bible with you, don't have an app on your phone to use, there should be a Bible right in front of you. It'll be from the same uh, translation that I'll be using, same version I'll be using. We'd love for you to pick one of those up and use it. We're going to be in the midst of a series of messages on Jonah uh, that we are walking through over four weeks. This book of Jonah that's one of the most well-known stories of the Bible and mining it, looking at it, for what it can teach us. Now, uh, a lot of times on Mother's Day, mothers are sometimes concerned that um, the preacher is going to really beat up on them on Mother's Day. They're you know, going to bring a hard Mother's Day message. We're going to put that on you. And so I decided not to do that today. I'm not going to give you a real hard beat up mothers on Mother's Day. I'm just going to give us a hard beat up on all of us message today. All right. So we're going to all of us be under this. And I do believe that today's message can be convicting for us, but it's convicting in a way that reminds us of the love and mercy of God in our lives. So uh, being Mother's Day, I thought we'd start with a question about parenting, and this is for mothers and fathers, and um, just want to ask a question, and it's really a support group time for us. It's a confessional time, and so how many of you here that are parents have ever temporarily misplaced your children? Like I see like one hand. That is untrue, all right? You know, like you're in a department store, you're shopping, you're somewhere, and your children for a moment, I'm not saying like hours, I'm talking momentarily, uh, misplaced your children, lost your children. Let me see those hands again, all right? There we, there we go. I'm glad you're honest in church. That's awesome, all right? And so um, generally when children get away from their parents, there are three different kinds of children that do that and three reasons that that happens. Uh, first of all, sometimes children are just wanderers. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord, right? And so like the parents are like on a mission and you're going somewhere and you're good. And the child is just taking in life, like just enjoying the scenery, just like awesome. Like, dad, did you see? Wow, that's like, oh, you're like 800 yards ahead of me. Oh, I better catch up. Like just kind of involved. And sometimes you kind of get away from that. And then some people, some kids are runners. Anybody ever had a runner? Yeah, we had a runner where, you know, you just, we had a child that remained nameless, Luke, that, um, used to just, uh, I remember in Opry Mills one time, he just took off running. And I remember watching the Olympics and thinking, like, Usain Bolt looks fast, but he's never seen Luke and Opry Mills running away from us. Like, you can't catch them, right? They're just gone. Like, they're purposely leaving you. And then you have, what I call the deceived. And I don't mean that in a bad way. They're just people that get distracted and perhaps they think they're following their parents, but they're following somebody completely different, just a stranger in life that they're following, right? Like that, uh, some of you know this story. That happened to us last year. We were at um, the happiest place on earth, which was decidedly not that for us for about 10 minutes. Um, we came off of um, that area where uh, Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is, and um, we had been there because Splash Mountain had been one of those waits that said 10 minutes and turned into four and a half hours or something like that. And we had been there a long time. We go to find the stroller, and I don't know if you've ever been in that place at like 12:30, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I think there were 2.4 million in that enclosed environment. We go looking for the stroller. I'm on a mission to find the stroller. I get it. I turn around to Susan like, hey, I got it. Start coming back. And she just looks at me and says, Maddie? And I'm like, she's with you. Nope. She apparently had followed some person she thought was me 
and had gone over the corner, and we're now in Disney World and have no idea where our daughter is. Now, our daughter is very smart and capable, and she remembered our phone number, walked right up to a cast member. My mom's name is Susan Larson. Her phone number is, and said, I'm not with them. We got a call from the cast member. But in that moment, we were what you would call stressed, right? Panicked, worried. Um, when we found her, we got free ice cream, so the boys were actually kind of excited that the whole thing had happened. <laughs> You know, free ice cream there and uh, have suggested that she try that at other times. And we quashed that pretty quickly. So in life, sometimes we find ourselves disconnected, distant from the Lord. And oftentimes it's for one of the same three reasons that kids get disconnected from their parents. Sometimes we just kind of wander that way. We get distracted by things in life. We get something kind of comes along. We're like, man, I'd like to give some attention to that or some time to that. Or, man, I'll go that way. Or my job's really kind of busy right now. Or, man, there's a lot of sports stuff going on in our family right now. We're kind of keep, we got to get, make sure we put our head down and do that. Or academic stuff, man, right now, this academic stuff is really got to get, got to get those grades, got to get to school, got to get through school. We just get distracted and wander a little bit. Sometimes it's uh, deceived, like we, we start a relationship with somebody we think is a good person or a follower of Christ, and we find out pretty soon that they're not, and they let us down a path. Maybe that's a friendship. Maybe that's a romantic relationship. Maybe it's a working relationship. Maybe it's going to work with somebody. We thought, man, that guy's really a believer. He's strong, and then we get there, and we realize the company's going in a different direction, and we're like, whoa, and that you find yourself suddenly distant from the Lord because you're in that position. And sometimes... We run. Like we hear the call of the Lord. We know what we're supposed to do. We know where we're supposed to be. We know how we're supposed to act. We know what we're supposed to be doing. And we just run. We're in the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah is the story of a man who ran. But more than that, and what's important for us to hear, whether we wander away, whether we run away, or whether we're deceived and taken away, what's important to hear is the story of Jonah is not just a story about a man who ran. It's about a God who chased him down. I don't know if you've ever been chased before, like really chased. Um, I was doing some research. I've been researching this, you know, the book of Jonah for the last several weeks, for the last month or so. And um, I was reading some things and they were talking about the chasing down Jonah. And I don't know if you know this or not, but psychologists have said the most disturbing dream people have is being chased. You ever had one of those dreams, like you're being chased by somebody or something? Like I was reading all that research last night, and guess what happened when I went to bed last night and fell asleep? I had a dream that the FBI was chasing me. I don't know what they were chasing me for, but I was really concerned, and it is very disconcerting. But the thing about God chasing you down is He doesn't chase you down to punish. He doesn't chase you down to remind you of how bad you are. He chases you down to restore you. And as we begin the message today, I just want you to understand something. I know that in a room this size, no matter how many times you've been to church or where you go to church or how many times you read your Bible today or how many times you've prayed or whether you've done any of that or none of that, what I know is in a room this size with this many people that part of what's going on, I know, is that there are some of you in this room that are being chased down by God because you've wandered away, you've run away, or you've been deceived away. 
When as we look into this passage, we're kind of catching on midstream, and Jonah is two chapters of one story and two chapters of another that are bound together. But the reality is that what we're going to see in this story is that you are never too far gone to be chased down by God and to be restored by Him. Jonah proves that, but more than that, as Anne Marie was talking about a few minutes ago, the Ninevites show that. Now, in the book of Jonah, we know that it starts with the calling of God on the life of a man, a prophet, a guy that had been a successful prophet. And he says, Jonah, I want you to get up. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell him about me. And Jonah says, no, hard pass. I'm going to stay. In fact, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to go the opposite direction. It would be as if God had said to you, I need you to go to Dallas, Texas to go to this mission trip. And you said, thanks, I'll go to Charlotte, North Carolina. Like he goes the opposite direction. He gets there, he gets in a boat, he gets out to sea, he thinks he's got away with, he's got away from the Lord. Storm comes, makes it virtually impossible to go anywhere. They can't even steer the ship where it needs to be. They start to get freaked out about it. They go down and say, who's, 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 who's ticked off their God? Who's made God mad? And Jonah's asleep in the bottom. They find Jonah. The captain says, hey, get up and pray to your God. And Jonah goes, no, I'm good. And he goes, well, we're all about to die. He said, well, just throw me overboard. He goes, just call out to your God. And Jonah goes, no, I'm good. They throw him off to the side. God establishes a fish to come and swallow him. And for three days he sits in the belly of a fish and doesn't repent. And it says on the third day, after he'd been there three days, he says, okay, I guess it's time. Reluctantly almost it sounds like he says, God, you were here, you've seen me, you know me, you've chased me, I've been in the depths, I've gone down. There's an emphasis that he goes down, he goes down, he goes down, and he gets to the rock bottom of it. He literally says, to the foundations of the mountains and the seas. God restores him and spits him out onto dry land. Julie, I'm telling the story of Jonah. It's all right over here. Spits him out onto dry land. And that's where we left off last week. And as we walk through the rest of this chapter, I want us to look at chapter 3, at what God does. So look at the end of chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, I can't imagine exactly what Jonah looks like. I can tell that he wasn't in the best of shape. It was not a good hair day for him. In fact, they know, um, or they think, that because he was in the belly of the fish, that scientists and scholars and all kinds of people have said that he would have been washed over with acid and probably would have been bleached. His entire body would have been bleached. His hair would have been bleached. He would have been just looking terrible. He would have come out of there with a distinctive smell that would not have wanted to be um, around at all. And he comes out, he's vomited onto dry land, and it says that immediately after that, it says in verse 1 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now what we're going to see in this first few verses is that it is exactly the same wording as chapter 1, verse 1, with a couple of differences. First of all, it has removed who he is, because we already know he's the son of Amittai, but it tells us that he came a second time. And in the original language, the emphasis there is on the fact that this is the second time that the same calling has come to Jonah. Now, just a little note, we'll talk about this morning a little bit later, but oftentimes when we choose to run from God, or we get distracted from God, or we move away from God, when God comes to restore us, when God comes to give us a second chance, he will often give us a second chance at the exact place we failed. He will give us an opportunity to redo what we've already done. And so he says to Jonah, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. 
Verse 3 is where it is different in his reaction. Jonah got up, same as before. Instead of fleeing the Lord, though, he goes to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. And so chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, are almost identical in their calling upon the life of Jonah. The only difference here is in one, Jonah flees, and in one, Jonah obeys. Second part of chapter 3, verse 3 says, Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. This is incredible because when it says an extremely great city, the actual phrase in the Hebrew Bible is Nineveh was a great city to the Lord, that it was important to God. Which is strange because Nineveh was one of the greatest enemies of God's people. And yet God says that Nineveh was an important city to him. What's fascinating is that throughout scripture there is this emphasis on God's love for cities. That cities are important to God. That cities have a special place in the heart of God. Now, why would you say that happened? Why is they important to God? Well, two characteristics that define an urban center or a city today are the density and diversity of the place. And so there are more people in a smaller area and there are more different kinds of people in a smaller area. And when you look at the heart of God, the things that stir the heart of God are people. And whenever you can find a group of people closely put together, diversely together, God's heart is there. I don't know if you know this or not, but the last few years have seen a transition in the way we live as a world. That for the first time in the history of the world, there are more people that dwell in urban environments, city environments, than in rural environments. Now, Nashville experiences some of that. Goodlettsville used to be country. It'd be hard to define it that way anymore, right? And it's not slowing down. It's going to expand, and more people are moving here all the time. There have been books written about America, how America is moving away from agricultural, rural communities to city economies. And what we have to realize as God's people is that God has a heart for the city because there is a density of people. There are people there, and they are a diversity of people. And not only that, but culture flows downstream from the city. That what starts in the city goes to the outlying areas. It rarely comes back to the city. And so we must, as Jonah was called to Nineveh, be people that take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the cities. It says here, by the way, that he walks in. Three-day walk. That just means it was huge. That means it would have taken him three days to walk around the circumference of the city proclaiming the message he was supposed to proclaim. And I love this because it says, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Now, we don't know if this is a summary of what he had to say or if this is the fullness of his message. And he just walked around for intended for three days yelling, y'all going to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped out. It's over. I know you think you're big, bad stuff, but God is coming and he is going to demolish you. Now, we know his heart was not in this message. We know that because in chapter four, it's going to tell us that he gets mad at God for saving Ninevites. So here's what we have. We have Jonah who doesn't want to be there in the first place, that had to be literally swallowed by a fish to get here. 
walking around a city, and for all we know, there were five words in the Hebrew language he said, which is basically, you are going to be destroyed. That's all he said. And I don't imagine he said it with a smile on his face, like, listen, pleading to you. You're going to be destroyed, but God can do something. God can redeem you. God can save you. My guess is if there was a smile on his face at all, it was a smirk, like, yeah, y'all about to get it. Like, y'all are the enemies of God and of God's people, and it is over for you, and I am okay with that. It is time for you to be destroyed. What's interesting is in the original language, that word for demolished can be taken one of two ways. One way is completely destroyed, demolished. The other way is turned around completely. Then the people of Nineveh. You know what I love? It says this is on day one. Jonah's barely gotten into his message. He's got a three-day plan. He barely gets into day one. The people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't trust Jonah. They didn't say much about Jonah's message. They just heard it and they believed God. They proclaimed a fast dressed in sackcloth that would have been really itchy. It would have been not pleasant at all. It was a sign that they were mourning, that they were weeping, that they were repenting. From the greatest of them to the least, from the top to the bottom. Next verse. When word reached to the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. We'll talk in a moment about all the details of that, but just get the picture that when he hears it, he repents. And he issued a decree in Nineveh that says, By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. This isn't like a, a, a partial fast. This isn't intermittent fasting. This isn't Daniel plan fasting. This is nothing. No water. Nothing touches your lips. As a people, we are not going to do anything until God does something. Now you remember day one. And he says, how long is it going to be before God destroys them? Forty days. And he's saying to his people, we are going to believe God can do something. We deserve whatever comes. We're going to fast until God answers. They must not eat drink, eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth. Can you imagine how that over with, went over with the animals? Any of y'all tried to put sweaters on your pets before? They don't like it. Listen, I know some of you love your pets. They don't like it, all right? They may look cute for your pictures. They don't like it. Now imagine putting scratchy burlap on your pets. They're going to tear something up, so what's going to happen? It says, so everybody must be covered in sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. And I love this next part. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? <laughs> I love this. Perhaps, maybe. God may turn and relent. He may turn from burning anger and that we will not perish. He says, we're going to do all this and maybe God will help us. That's not the only time in Scripture that somebody says that. Over in uh, the story of Jonathan, uh, Samuel's, I mean, Samuel, Saul's son, and his armor bearer, there's a place where they're going to get ready to go attack a Philistine army, and it's the two of them. And he says to his armor bearer, hey, we're going to run up there and attack those guys, and maybe God will show up. Now, that's faith. He says, we're going to sit here and we're going to trust that God's going to do something. Verse 10 says this. Next verse. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. 
he relented. A couple of things about the people there. They did not deserve for God to relent in the least. Even though they repented, even though they've gotten sackcloth and ashes, the list of things they had done did not add up to God saying, okay, now you're good. It wasn't because they changed their ways a little bit. God was okay. What we see here is God's grace extends to people that even we would not extend God's grace to. A couple of things in this passage that I want us to be reminded of, that I want us to think and I want you to take with you. If you've got something, you're writing down stuff, I'd write down these two things. First of all, take advantage of your next chance when God gives it to you. Now, I'm not going to say second chance here, and there's a reason I'm not going to say second chance, even though it says second chance, basically, in the story of Jonah, because some of you in this room have already used up your second chance, and your third chance, and your twelfth chance. God is continuing to be faithful to you. He's beginning to, he's continuing to be gracious to you. He's continuing to give you chance after chance after chance. And I'm just saying that whenever you get another chance to do what God has called you to do, whenever you get another chance to return to the Lord, whenever you get another chance to take advantage of something God is offering to you, take it. God chose to chase down Jonah and gave him a second chance for Jonah's good. Not just because God loves him, although he does. Not just because God wanted to restore him, because he does. But also because he knew Jonah was the mouthpiece that would take salvation to a group of people that were desperately in need. And so he chased down Jonah, not just for Jonah, but for the Ninevites. And my question to you is, who is being prevented from hearing the story of God's grace because you have refused to do what God has called you to do? See, sometimes we get so caught up in our lives and our things. Well, God, nobody's getting hurt by this. I'll be back I'll, or I'll come back. Or, man, I, I mean, I'm just not ready for that. Then what we don't realize is God is intending to use our lives to impact other people. And we must come to him and obey before that starts. He wants to restore us so that he can use us. I think about David after he um, committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had her husband killed, that he lives for a year in the midst of that. He is crushed by it tells us in scripture that he in his psalms he says that his bones were were wasting away within him that he was wasting away that he could not live his life productively because of the guilt in his life and he did not want to be confronted with this sin he did not want nathan the prophet to come to him and say you're the man that has done all this but when that happened and he confessed his sin to the lord when he said against you and you alone god have i sinned when that happened and god restored him he had the most productive years of any king of israel in history because he was willing to do what God called him to do. When I think about Peter, Peter who denied Christ on the night that he was crucified or tried and crucified the next day, and Peter denied him three times, and Peter, it tells us there, was to be restored by God, not just because God cared about Peter, although he did. One of my favorite verses in all the scriptures in the book of Mark, we think it's written from Peter's perspective. The resurrection happens. Peter is down because he has denied Christ three times. The rooster is crowed. That guilt has been on him for the weekend. And it says, and the angels said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Then you have that meeting where Jesus and Peter eat fish on the shore. And he says, do you love me? You know I do. Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? You know I do. Then feed my sheep. You know know I do, Lord. You know I do. And he says, take care of my sheep. Go do what you're supposed to do. And just a few days later, 
Peter would stand up in the same city where he had denied Jesus three times and proclaim that Jesus Christ that had been crucified was risen again and that he is the Savior of the world. Repent and be baptized. And 3,000 people had their lives eternally changed that day. Paul was a man who was living far away from the Lord. He was persecuting the Lord's people. He was there when Stephen was stoned and giving his approval. And God wrestles with him on the way to Damascus. He restores him not just for the sake of Paul, but also because Paul would become the most prolific church planter in the New Testament era and would write over half the New Testament. You see, God's restoring Jonah not just for Jonah, but for the Ninevites. But I also think it's interesting, as I mentioned, that the advantage to take or taking advantage of the next chance wasn't just the life of Jonah, but it was in the life of the Ninevites as well, specifically seen in the work of the king. It says in verse 6, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, and it is specifically put in the original language in a way that makes us see the contrast. He got up from his throne. He, another way to read that is he gave up his throne. Now, that didn't mean he literally stepped down somebody else took his place. It meant he was no longer worthy in his own mind to be seated on that throne. How do we know that as well? Because the next thing is that he took off his royal robe, his kingly robe, and he said, the depravity of what's inside of me, the desperate nature of who I am, the reality of how evil I am, I am no longer worthy to wear this. He got up from his throne. He tore off his royal robe. He put on the same sackcloth that all the commoners did, all of the people in his uh, kingdom did, and then he sat in ashes. It was a sign that he was mourning, that he was despairing, that he was calling out on the Lord that had been preached by Jonah. And his life and the lives of his people were changed. Scripture says the same thing for us, that maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Ephesians chapter 4.20 says that when we come to Christ, that when we accept His salvation, that we take off the former way of life that has been corrupted and we are renewed, we're put on a new clothing of God's likeness. And so the question becomes, how do we take advantage of the next opportunity? And it's simple. We obey. And the way that Jonah obeys is simply he fulfills his call. God uses flawed people to change the world. Jonah realized that salvation belonged to the Lord. That's why he didn't want to go to preach because he knew that God may save these people. In fact, I think it's interesting that from the scripture we have an eight-word sermon that he preached, five in the original language. His heart wasn't in it. He didn't care if the people repented. He wasn't giving an altar call. He wasn't pleading with people. He wasn't hoping people would come. And yet God had prepared their hearts to the point that immediately upon hearing the message, they repented. Now here's an important part of this story, something we have to understand. God prepares people's hearts again and again and again. In fact, that there are people in your lives, I believe this, people in your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, people that live around you, people that are in contact with you, people that are on social media with you, that's hearts are being prepared by God for something to happen. But listen to this. Throughout Scripture, God uses people to carry His Word to the hearts of the people that have been prepared. 
We are the tools that God uses. We are the instruments. And the people in Nineveh were ready. It's obvious they were ready. Jonah hadn't gone in there. He didn't seem to team in there to prayer walk with them beforehand. He didn't talk about it. He probably didn't even pray for these people before he went in. He just went in and said, hey, you're about to be destroyed. And immediately there is salvation happening all among the place because their hearts were ready. But they did not respond until the word of the Lord came. In the book of Acts, here's what's interesting. There are all kinds of miracles that happen in the book of Acts, but the only time the Word of God is carried to people and people respond is when God uses human beings to do it. One of my favorite stories in there about that, to illustrate that, comes in Acts chapter 10. I don't know if you remember this story, but there's a Gentile leader named Cornelius who's at his house one day and he hears this stuff and he's like, man, I want to investigate this thing about, I've been praying, God, I've heard about this thing. I want to know about this. I want to know what I need to do. And an angel appears to him. And an angel appears to him and says, we have heard your prayers. We know you want to hear about the gospel. We know you want to hear what you need to do to be right with God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to send a guy to come tell you about it. Now think about this for a minute. Me, man, never thought about this. Why didn't the angel just tell him? Do you think the angel didn't know? Right? The angel knew. Why didn't the angel just tell him? Why the angel goes, man, we've heard your prayers. This is awesome. Guess what? If you want to believe in Jesus, this is what you need to do. This is what Jesus has done for you. But he doesn't do that. He says, we're going to send somebody. Now listen to the work that God has to do to send him there. Peter is sitting at home, and he gives him a dream where a drape drops, and all the food that he has been taught all his life, he could not eat. He says, now go eat that. And Peter's like, no. That's literally what Peter told God. That's a dangerous thing, by the way, right? No. And he says, no, get up and eat. No, no, no. God, you told me never to eat that. I'm telling you, you can eat that. Now listen, bacon was on that list. If I was Peter, I'd been like, amen, brother, let's go, right? Let's go. But Peter's like, no. God says, yes. And God gets him and he goes, now here's what I want you to do. Now that you can eat all that, I'm going to send you all the way to this guy's name, Cornelius' house. You're going to go in and eat with him and then you're going to explain the gospel to him. And again, my question is, look at all that God went to to take the gospel to this one man, but he used a human messenger to do it. So here's what I believe, and I believe this with all my heart, that if you do not share the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are people in this world who would not hear it or will not hear it because they were supposed to hear it from you. Now, first of all, mothers, fathers, your first priority in life is to share the gospel, to share the story of Jesus with your kids. Grandparents, it's with your grandkids. It's with your nieces, your nephews, your family. But it doesn't stop there. God has specific people in your life, I believe, that he is going to use you to take the message of the gospel to them. My question just simply is, are you doing that? The story of Jonah 3 is really two decisions that have to be made. First of all is, will you turn back to the Lord if you've been running or if you found yourself distant? And then secondly, will you fulfill the calling that he's put on your life to tell others about him? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And those are the two questions I want you to think about. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to think about the question of, are you going to respond to the, to the invitation that he's put on your life? Do, 
He's asking you today whether you want to trust him and follow him. I believe just like the Ninevites had a decision about that one word, whether they were going to be destroyed, demolished, or turned around and have their whole city changed, that the same is true for your life. If you want to follow Christ, he will change your life. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, and like Jonah, you've kind of walked away or you've gotten off the path or you're not quite on mission, what would it take for you to just say, God, I'm ready to do what you've called me to do? Maybe you're, and you've been living your life pretty, I mean, you, you're not like crazy off the rails and there's not stuff going on. You're like, I'm not that distant from the Lord, but you know that you haven't been sharing the word that God's given you with people that he's given. You haven't even been listening for that. You haven't even been thinking about that. You haven't lived your life with kind of awareness, God, who am I supposed to share with? And today's the day that you want to ask God to show you that. Will you take advantage of your next opportunity, your next chance? And will you fulfill the calling that God's got on your life? Let's pray together.